Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And this week, coming to us from Maine is actually uh, someone I went to high school with, and I consider him a friend. His name is Ben Parker. He considers himself a citizen of the world, having lived in, traveled to, and interacted with many different cultures and the biomes they share. He views the world through an interconnected lens, rejecting silos and endeavors to think problem-solve through a systems approach, while fundamentally trying to understand how people from various backgrounds engage, perceive, and quote-unquote log in to the systems based on their life circumstances. Through his law degree, international development work, and most recently his attainment of an LLM, he hopes to impact the trajectory of existential threats, such as the overarching impact of climate change through making his best, hopefully, personal contribution as a part of a worldwide effort to meet these challenges. And uh, while that may sound like a lot of word soup, I love every word in that. And it is essentially why I had this man on my podcast. So with no further delays, Ben, how's it going? I'm doing great, Mike. Uh, Thanks a lot for having me. And um, that was a bunch of word soup. I uh, wrote it on the spot. Um, But it's essentially my uh, viewpoint. And the key is hopefully, you know. That's what I aspire to. <laughs> well, it's a brilliant. I mean, it's, seriously, it's it's it makes total sense. I just think uh, it's hard for people to hear something like that rather than reading it. But um, to me, uh, it's really cool to like grow up with someone and casually know you, and then like as I see you kind of just like here and there between the years, and then especially on social media, I started to see that you were like really active in things that I care a lot about. So I was so excited to have you on the show. Yeah, well, again, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I've been watching your show as well, Mike, and you're doing a fantastic job. And I've read your blogs, and I find them to be really, you know, introspective. And obviously, you're being vulnerable, which is important for all of us to uh, sort of remind ourselves that that helps us to be that way as well. And so I appreciate that. Thank you, dude. I really appreciate that. And then for our audience to catch up, uh, why don't you just run us through like quickly just kind of your childhood, like where were you born and raised? Because I, I think you moved to our hometown at some point. And then uh, before you answer that also, just how old are you and what generation, if any, do you think you belong to? Well, I am 42. And um, I guess technically I'm I'm not Gen X. I'm not a millennial. I'm like on the border. But, you know, the way I always viewed a millennial is when, you know, Mike, you know the same, is we didn't grow up with the internet. We definitely didn't grow up with, you know, smartphones. Um, we had basic cable. <laughs> we, we had the Spice Channel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, like, our life was, you know, completely different. So I don't, that's why I don't associate myself with being a millennial, regardless of age, just because, you know, we, when we grew up, we really did spend a lot of our times out, outside, et cetera. So um, I think that is, like, a, a definite, you know, differential between the generations. Um and as far as my upbringing, um, I was born in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, my uh, dad was getting his uh, PhD in economics. And my mom was getting her master's in uh, education. And when I was uh, like two and a half, um, my dad got a job with the uh, Harvard uh, Development Institute. It was a private group that did similar work to as USAID, so international development. And uh, we moved to Indonesia. And from there... You know, I obviously, you know, I was two and a half till about four and a half. So obviously that impacted my viewpoint significantly. Um, Then I moved to D.C. for four years, then back to Indonesia for four. And then around that time, sixth grade, the day before sixth grade, I moved to Arinda. Um, I was called Indonesian. And yeah, and then, you know, since then, I've lived in a bunch of different places, lived in California, um, probably 
I would say like 16 years of my life. Um, but also I lived in Vietnam and Myanmar. I was just in the past three years, um, a little bit of time in Laos, studied some study abroad in Europe. Um, and so, and most recently Maine and just, you know, been you know traveling a lot pre COVID essentially. So that's kind of where I'm at now. That's so, that's so cool. And better than the word cool. It's really fascinating. Um, and it's funny cause I do remember you now coming in in sixth grade, although I don't remember making fun of you for Indonesia, but I totally remember making fun of you for Wisconsin. So that's pretty funny that my weird childhood memories go there. <laughs> well, cause as you recall, when sixth grade hit, you know, there was what three different elementary schools at the time. So everybody was kind of in their elementary school click. Um, until obviously everybody started to get to know each other. So, um, and I didn't have a click, so, you know, just took some, some time, um, to sort of meet people. But my first two friends were Ryan Perez and Matt Muir, and I, you know them both. So, um, that's the rest of history. <laughs> yeah. At the time, I wouldn't have cared that you had lived in Indonesia. Now I want to ask you questions about that for more than half an hour, which is like longer than the length of the show, because I mean, it's not quote unquote normal for an American to move to another country like that and live there. Um, it just isn't like, it's just not a common experience in our country. And so I am curious. Um, well, first of all, at, when you were living there for the second time for the four years, did you learn, like, I think it's Javanese or Indonesian. Like, did you learn either of those languages? Uh, so I learned some of Bahasa Indonesian, Indonesia, which um, essentially, as, as you might know, or might not, um, Indonesia was a uh, Dutch colony um, and uh, Singapore and Malaysia were uh, British colonies. Um, so essentially the Dutch and the British and the whole area had consistently been a uh, center for trade. You know, I mean, um, the Silk Road, et cetera, was not just on land, but also went through the Malacca uh, Straits, which is you know, going around Singapore and between Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, so <clears throat> it was essentially similar to something like Swahili. It was a, a trade language and it was used that so many various groups could understand each other. So, for example, when I lived in Java, which, you know, is where Jakarta is, that's one of the most complex languages in the entire world. And I didn't speak any Javanese, but Bahasa was a very simple language. So, and I'm, I'm not amazing with um, languages, but I, I learned, you know, I would say intermediate Bahasa. Um, I had tons of Indonesian friends, um, so we spoke mostly Bahasa, but... Even like in um, in like parliament and in government, they substitute a lot of English words, especially technical words. So that's that's kind of how it works. But Bahasa was also very important because Indonesia is you know seventeen thousand plus islands, so many different languages. And if you want to sort of unify all those people, it helps to have one sort of nationalized language to communicate across all these different cultures, et cetera. Yeah, I've traveled a lot. I've been to like maybe 30 something countries and uh, I lived in Thailand on and off, um, as a lot of my audience knows. And so I'm not in any way saying like, oh, I have a feather in my hat. I'm so well cultured. It's the opposite. What I am trying to say is that I've noticed that sometimes I get irritated by like things that are distinctly American, even though I'm totally American and I do them. I'm curious, did you have that at a young age, like in sixth and seventh grade, were you like, oh my God, I'm so American? Uh, well, no, I, I mean, I felt the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, and uh, this is a, um, I guess, similar concept, which is not to sound um, cocky, but um, as you know, OIS that we went to our middle school was for a public school in the United States is a very, very good public school, right? 
Um, and, you know, in our Miramani, our high school was also very top notch. I always used to say, you know, my biology teacher freshman year had a Harvard degree. So and that's, you know, we went to a very solid public school. But when, when I moved to Arinda in uh, sixth grade, I was like three grades uh, past everybody. Um, I had already done vast majority of these things. I had a much sort of bigger worldview. Um, but I also wanted to assimilate. I've always been very social. So I wanted to, you know, I'm always trying to, I, I am me, I'm unique. I have a lot of energy, especially then. But, you know, I mean, I was out of control. You know this. But at the same time, um, you know, like I obviously wanted to fit in and have friends. So I guess there's a, always that tension. But I've tried most of my life, I've tried at least to kind of just, you know, be myself as much as I can. And if if that equals positive results, then that's great. And if not, well, um, you know, I can learn from mistakes, but also I think it's important to, you know, stay true to yourself as well. That's really cool. Um, and I'll throw a nice compliment at you. Um, you know, I we graduated like 333 people. I literally remember all of them. I just have a great memory for people and I love people. And like you, I'm I'm a pretty social creature. I have a lot of like really warm, good memories of you, of like all the people I wasn't close friends with. You were actually like very high. Maybe it's because we did public speaking together. I don't know. But when you mentioned the like bundle of energy, I remember thinking when we were graduating, I, I hope this kid succeeds because because he's like all over the place, but really smart. So that, that was another just kind of fun bonus to see you. Um, I definitely remember seeing you at one of our reunions and I was so impressed. Yeah, that was the the 10 year one, right? The one in Oakland. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. I think I was just starting. I started law school in 2008. Yeah. And I also remember just thinking like, wow, all of us like not great students and i'm using a lot of euphemism we ended up like doing just fine <laughs> yeah i mean you know like obviously um i mean speaking for myself i've dealt with a lot of uh challenges as well it's a form of white privilege which is no matter what no matter how you know the outside world thought i was going down meaning like you know i had you know obviously made i got expelled from high school for example um and i had made mistakes um never it never crossed my mind that I wouldn't reach my goals. Um, in fact, I'm much I'm much less confident now than I was when I was younger. It, it was just to me. It was just it was ordained. It was obvious that even if I made mistakes, that I in the end I would always make up for them. You know that was at least my mindset. Um, but you know when you go through life, obviously you get beat down some, and you know unless you're like Steph Curry, you're rationally confident. You know you're gonna. <laughs> You're going to you're going to have some doubt, you know, sometimes. So, yeah. And actually, um, I'd love to hang on like the word choice you use, like white privilege. And I'm not saying it because it offended me. It's the opposite. I think it's something that it really like irritates a lot of white people to hear that term because it's loaded and it's loaded for a reason. But I am curious, do you feel like the trend in our world is working towards a more cohesive like unification that will lead to like of course some will have privilege and some won't but it won't be as much race as it will be something else um yeah that's interesting i, I mean again that's one of those things we could talk for hours on end about um but so i guess let me try to attack it in a few different ways so first and it, you know obviously you said you had lived in thailand so you can relate to this which is um like i was just living in myanmar for three years and in myanmar culture um which has some similarities to Thai culture as far as um, being quite hierarchical, I can't speak. Um, so there was sort of like, you know, you had the uh, age was a big thing, obviously. 
um, you know, older people have to be shown respect. If people are traditional, in fact, nobody would even start eating before the oldest person at the table would start, for example. And and I'm very, um, I, I don't like to follow rules. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> but I also, you know, I mean, you have to balance that with being respectful. But anyway, regardless, foreigners were sort of a uh, a third lane separate category. So I was treated almost equally to a 90-year-old person because I was a foreigner. So so as a result, I got stared at a lot. I got clearly I was identified as different, but I was still incredibly privileged. I mean, I went around to all over the country for the company I was working with and I went to, you know, very poor villages and um, you know, factually, no matter what, in the end of the day, I could go back to a nice place. The electricity didn't go off very often. I had hot water. I had food that wasn't contaminated, you know. So, I mean, I never, never took any of those things for granted. And then as your bigger question, well, I, that goes two ways to me. One is, as a person, I'm sure similar to you, we've studied history. And we know that, I don't mean the history is secular and just like sort of the um, the way that, you know, it repeats itself. But in many ways, I, I you just see you just see sort of social systems and humanity go through circles. And right now I see younger people, um, you know, a lot of people are post-race. Um, so like when they've done surveys of, you know, say 20, 22 year olds, they don't even view, and this comes from people of many different backgrounds and colors, they don't even view the racial component as much. So the positive of that is that people are not just, you know, um, as outwardly racist, but the negative is that when you have latent racism and structural racism, you don't notice that. So um, I do think the younger generation's in a good place. And as I mentioned in my little bio thing, uh, climate change is going to affect and test every social system that humans are a part of. And so we need we need people who are willing to, you know, take these challenges head on. And we need people to be, we, we, we just don't have time for division, I guess my, my point. So as much as I, you know, in a short period of time to answer your question, let's just say I hope that people are moving in a more positive direction. Um, but as you know, when people are challenged, that's when you get more conservative responses. When people have less security, especially as people get older, when they have families, et cetera, and you know they have to deal with money situations and as uh, resources become more limited that's when you have more potential for conflict so i i hope to i hope that we um are beyond that but we shall see yeah and and just to editorialize a little bit i also think that there's a lot of like investment in creating fear so that people are acting, you know, as you said, more conservatively, but either way, just acting out of fear because it's easy to control people when they're fearful and it's harder to control people when they're content with what they have. And so like when we talk about resources and limited resources, it's like for what and for what purposes, you know, like, um, uh, you know, I, oh, I only have 19 cigars left in my humidor. Like that's an example of like scarcity of resources that aren't necessary. And I, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but it's more to just to kind of come back to what the purpose of this show is, which is trying to unite people, but also trying to hear everyone's perspectives loud and clear, because I do share yours. And I think that call it climate change, call it global warming, if you want call it like any term you want, I call it pollution, just to avoid a lot of stupid semantic debates. But 
either way, I mean, it's obvious that the evidence is visual. The evidence is like in your nostrils. The evidence is everywhere. And especially if you're in Asia. So yeah, so I think it's, it's tragic that we're arguing. And I also think it's tragic that we're allowing ourselves to argue. Right. When I said uh, conservative, I don't mean that in a political perspective. I mean, if you, if you look at the definition of conservative, literally, if you look at the definition of it is to close your mind to outside information. And it, it's just shown time and time again that as there's challenges, it's even people who are, you know, politically view themselves as um, you know, liberal, but when they're met with these challenges, how they respond oftentimes is a more conservative approach. And actually, one of my favorite people in the world, an old boss I had used to say, uh, don't confuse me with the facts I've made up my mind as a joke. But I think that's, you know, what conservatism is. And so having lived in multiple cultures and having grown up the way you did and moved back and forth and all that, were you raised with any religion in particular? And as of now, do you have one? And how? what is your worldview? So my, my mom's family uh, was all Catholic. Um, so my mom, her, basically everybody in her family was, she was, I guess, what, first or second generation. Um, so I guess there was one part of her family that was Swedish. So they were most likely, you know, Lutheran. And then it was Portuguese, Irish, I guess, and then English, they probably weren't. Um, oh, no, they're on my mom's side, they're all Catholic. So, but I, I mean, I can answer that very easily. When I was living in Indonesia the second time, um, I already was not a believer. Uh, and part of the reason is because I had already been to so many different places with so many different religious beliefs and spiritual perspectives that they were 100% positive theirs was correct. And not all of them can be correct, especially when there's conflict between them. And But I remember I was at a point, the only time I would ever use sort of religious connotation or thoughts um, to drive ideas for myself was my parents would go on trips. Like they said, oh, we're going to go antique shopping in Jakarta. And Jakarta is a massive city. Um, and they drove themselves, which is not super common, actually, for a lot of expats. Um, and they would say, I'll be back in two hours. And like eight hours later, they would come home. So I always assumed they were dying <laughs> or they were dead. <laughs> and this is obviously pre-cell phone and all that, you know, so there was no way to call. And that's when I would say, I would say things like, um, God, I know I say I don't believe in you, but if you are real, you do, do your thing this one time for me. But then I got to a point, my parents always told me that I can make my own decisions and make up my own mind. And around fifth grade, I started to meet evangelical Christians. Um, some were Indonesian and some were um, very commonly either their parents were evangelical preachers from the United States um, or their families were working on oil projects. Indonesia has a lot of oil. And these kids um, really believed in the Kool-Aid. And they, they would tell me if I don't believe in Jesus that I was going to hell. They would beat me with um, pillows. Um, and trying to change my perspective and that very much solidified. Actually, I, I know the, and I know the one moment that I was done, which was my mom is a diehard Beatles fan. And I was at my friend's um, place, way different part of the, the city. And she's from Australia. And this guy brought us into his place. I guess it was like a, maybe like a rec center. And he had one of those propaganda videos and it was all about how rock and roll is the devil's music and the Beatles are all satanic worship, you know, Satan worshipers. 
And I went home and told my parents, and my parents, and my mom said, we've always said you can believe in you want, but this is bull. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when my mind was finally fully made up, I would say. That was the final straw. That's um, great. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not religious at all, but I, I lived in very religious countries like Myanmar is like 94% Buddhist and the rest are mostly Christian and some um, uh, Hindus. Um, and then obviously some different groups. There's like seven Jews left there. And my, uh, my dad was business, not business partners, but he worked with one of them called, uh, uh, it was Shalom something. And um, so, you know, like, but, there might have been seven left in the country, but they had great parties. So, you know, I, I hung out with those guys sometimes, but I, I've, I try to be respectful. I try not to throw the my religion is science at people, uh, especially as I've gotten older. My viewpoint is very much I want the scientific method, which is I want every idea to be challenged until no holes can be found anymore. And with things like religion, it's the exact opposite. It requires faith. <laughs> when there's a billion holes um, and that just doesn't apply with my, my viewpoints, my perspective. And that's interesting. I'm going to like put a little pin in that. Cause I'm going to ask you about faith and then um, like the line of work you're doing, but before I get there. So when you talked about like praying for your parents and all that, that's a, a really common moment of intersection for me and a lot of our guests, which is like when my son was first taken, I wasn't praying that I would get him back. I was just praying that he was okay for a while. And I remember no matter how much I do or don't believe in the efficacy of prayer, I know it's just like this gut reaction I have. So I am curious, what do you think is going to happen when you die? And then is that tied in at all to the your life work? Hey, everybody. I just want to thank you so much for listening to the show. Our numbers keep growing and we have a premium package and it would really help us out if some of you loyal fans would head over there and sign up. You get bonus monthly podcasts, you get a book I wrote, and you also get extra essays and other content. So please head over to MikeyOp.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and sign up today. When I die, I'm going to biodegrade like every other organic species every organic thing uh on earth and i know there's a new trend and to pass laws i just saw an effort in new york uh, where humans can be buried and biodegrade without a coffin which is i know it's called i know we're dealing with coffin talk here yeah no that's really cool actually that's awesome <laughs> so that's a way that i can give back my nutrients as you know all energy in the world it's always at a constant level. It just, it, there's just energy transfer everywhere. And so as, as a result, I'm still not spiritual about that. Um, I know that, for example, from a very, you know, 30,000 feet perspective, you could say, oh, isn't that similar to some religions like Buddhism, for example? But to me, it's, well, I always have said, does anybody mourn an ant? And I don't feel like people do, but, you know, they're pretty amazing creatures for their their size, pound for pound. Oof, they can bring it. Um, and if you step on an ant, or you even think about um, at a more cellular level, when all the all the bacteria, for example, that's in our body and on our bodies that we would die without, we just don't think about those things. We don't mourn those things. But without those things, like as you can see with bees, for example, when you lose pollinators, we lose the fabric of, you know. Uh, uh, life essentially so that's that's as spiritual as i get essentially that's very cool and it's a great answer and i don't need to pick at it further um also because i want to ask you about your your career work and your mission so i do want to tie in this word about faith though because 
I sometimes I listen very well to people arguing and I listen to people argue against and for climate change. And one of the more reasonable arguments I hear from people who are angry at climate change advocates is scientists get paid to lie. We know they lied about sugar. We know they lied about tobacco. We know they lied about COVID. We know. And and that is true. I will acknowledge that to the ends of earth and back. So how do you have faith in the science behind climate change when some of the science and scientists are fraudulent. Oh, well, that's simple. Basically, the 3% who have <laughs> gone back against um, the 97% are the ones who are paid by big oil and other <laughs> and other industries that benefit from lack of client, climate advocacy. And, you know, as we know, for example, scientists who work for uh, mobile wrote letters and, you know, wrote reports in 1980 describing the reality of climate change and what what was going to be faced. Um, so once those internal that internal information has come out, it's not necessarily that the legitimate scientists within these organizations are even um, stating the things that maybe a particular company or um, country might um, uh, sort of uh, say out loud or or advocate for for their own interests. Um, but another thing I read in a really great book called uh, the sixth, the sixth extinction, extinction. Um, uh, I think it won Pulitzer Prize, like, or uh, it won a bunch of awards a few years ago. And, um, what she was talking about in the book is that actually when, if you look at the data, it's something like 92 or 93% of climate scientists. But when you look at it holistically from people across the board in quote unquote science, as well as, um, a vast majority of people who are adjacent to it in economics um, and other fields that are not not fully climate scientists, but are can be scientists in other fields. It, the the percentage is almost 100 um, percent, you know, because it, it just broadens the pool of of people um, who um, can see it from their various lenses. So I, I guess, and I also want to add that, regardless of something, just say for a second that um, this concept wasn't true. Well, be, caring about our environment and those issues is only a benefit. It's truly only a benefit for our, our lives and our existence. So I guess one of the things that I'm trying to figure out is what, what niche um, am I, what role can I play? Because I'm just one person. What can I play? And I'm starting to identify um, environmental justice as an area um, where I think I could have a strong impact. Um, and I think it's extremely important regardless of, of the climate change issue and this also uh, it's connected to just local pollution as well which significantly affects people of color and people with lower economic scales throughout the united states and more so around the world as well yeah i mean i it's a it's a little awkward for me because i agree so strongly with you that i'm trying to ask questions for like the other people who listen to this who aren't as strongly inclined as i am um you know like my wife loves earth and loves the environment but you know at some point she gets angry with me because i am like so <laughs> like hey turn that faucet off we don't need that many plants like, you know and i'm also a giant hypocrite just in case anyone's listening um i regularly order from amazon so don't don't worry i i'm not i'm not i'm not a pure soul either well but i am curious um and this goes back to what i noticed about you in junior high school and high school and i think now that i'm older and i can articulate my thoughts i realize that the people i liked growing up were just like kind people like they just seem to be kind and uh you're a kind person i'm curious what is like the source of your kindness and compassion like why do you think you care 
about the fate of humanity and about this existential threat. Well, first off, thanks. And right back at you. And I'm saying that in all honesty, I, I told my parents that I was going to be on this podcast and they remembered you. But I mean, uh, from my perspective, I a, want to say I'm also a hypocrite. Um, but for a and again, I'll use the privileged concept. My overall, I would say, um, carbon footprint is quite low. The one thing that traditionally would be the highest usage would be traveling, especially flying, obviously. Um, but uh, I would say, why why do I care? Is because from a very young age, um, I, I never lived. I was always social. I met people from all socioeconomic backgrounds, um, different ethnic groups, different nationalities. And I met great people who were at the top and great people who, you know, quote unquote, were at the bottom. Um, and I'm not, and I like hiking and things like that, but I wouldn't, you know, I, I love the concept more than, I'm not like the world's biggest outdoorsman. I, I know, um, you know, Muir, you know, John Muir, like I, I don't go out there and have sort of a religious experience. Um, but the science does say that if you are surround yourself by more trees, you have a, it has a positive um, influence on your health. So, um, but regardless, I would just say that, I mean, with like I, I said, there's one life, there's one experience. Why in, why in the world would I not want it to be as best as possible for as many people as possible, as well as the, the, the natural world that we share, essentially? That's cool. And um kind of to wrap up my end of the questioning, what do you think would help people who are just rationally or irrationally, it's not important to me, really just upset with the idea of being told that they have to make changes that sound challenging to them to help the environment? So there's been um, one of the books I've read recently. Um, there's the Green Movement um, has really tried to foster a lot of win-win um, situations. Um, but a lot of those win-win situations have been criticized by um, people who uh, believe are more uh, more socially justice concerned, social justice concerned. Um, and one of the reasons is because it's essentially led to you know, concepts of greenwashing. But like, I mean, from a basic economic standpoint, if more people are doing well, then if you have a small business you're going to have more people who are going to be um, using your business, who are going to be buying your services or your, your goods, your products. Um, you're going to get a greater sense of community. You're going to get a greater sense of um, sort of shared involvement. And so these things aren't thrust upon you. There's something that become a um, sort of a better way, a better way to live life. And we all, you know, the political um in uh, politics, they often talk about, you know, how we lost the, the middle class and we lost, you know, Main Street and all these type of concepts. But the the new movement, sort of the green movement, is all about uh, coming back to local concepts. So, you know, what think globally, act locally, right? Um, th those things to me are they provide a social interactions and um, the social, uh, I can't think of a good word right now, but they provide what a lot of people feel like they're missing in life. And so I, I I think that no matter what your political viewpoint is, that you actually want a lot of the results of sort of the things that I'm fighting for or people like me are fighting for. 
That's awesome. That's such a great answer. And normally I would just like end the podcast with that because it was so powerful. But I, I really want to hear in case you have something else you want to add. If people are have the are able, you know, have the ability to travel as much as you can, meet as many people as you can, um, have as many experiences as you can. And I, I promise you, you'll be much richer as a result. Um, and obviously, you know, I don't mean that financially. Um, you'll just be, you'll have a richer life. And I think you'll be more resilient because as Mike, you and I both know life does a lot of challenges. And if you're not resilient and we're going to have to become more and more resilient, the more experiences that you've had, the more times you've seen something or if you've spoken with people, or you have more people to lean on, the more likely you're going to be able to meet those challenges and, and hopefully um, even come out you know, stronger like, like you're doing yourself, Mike. That was a great, great answer um, from my heart to yours. Like, really, best of luck because you're doing the work that I want to see done. Thank you again, Ben Parker, for coming on the show and helping us put another nail in the proverbial coffin of a world that will soon maybe not feature coffins. And uh, to everyone listening at home, the best way to support the show is just to go over to MikeyOp.com and hit the big old subscribe button. Uh, you'll get a weekly essay that's free, and then you'll also get a chance to become a premium subscriber, which comes with other extra goodies, including novels and books I write. So thank you, and we will see you. Oh, wow. you Feel the you who am I